The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Here's our question. What does God mean in Genesis 3.16 when he says in apparent judgment on the woman, your desire shall be for your husband? Let's pray. Precious Lord, you are the one who makes marriages. Jesus said, what God has brought together, may no man pull asunder. You took Adam and put him into the garden, calling him to serve and to guard your land and all that was within it. You made Adam needy of a helper, You awakened Adam to look at his bride and say, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. How much Satan wants to thwart your global purposes of filling the earth, multiplying and subduing it, having dominion through a man and a woman, a kingdom family, Satan doesn't like it. And I'm asking for grace this morning to help our marriages. Apart from you, we can do no good thing. Husbands can't love their their wives well. Wives can't love their husbands well. Singles can't desire marriage well or even live singly well, apart from you. The curse is so rampant, and I'm asking today for curse-overcoming blood-bought grace to just fill this room. Help us where we're at. Love our spouses where they're at. Meet us through your book, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's not my desire to simply answer questions in the abstract. This is about as personal as it gets for someone who's married. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? This, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your man, for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So we just want to get our hands around, what does this mean Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. How are we supposed to understand that? 
So as we go in, don't hesitate, raise your hand. As we go into this text, I want us to consider first where it fits. It fits in Genesis 3. This is not Genesis 1 and 2 world, this is Genesis 3 world. And what is Genesis 3 world? You tell me. Fall. So this is a result of fall. We've got original rebellion in this text. We read in chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Now just in the previous chapter, chapter 2, verse 15, God had called the man, before the woman was even on the scene, God called the man, look at the verse with me, chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man, he had made him outside the garden, he put him into the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, this term for work is a term used elsewhere for working soil, but it's also just a general term for serving in any, other, in any way. The term for keeping can mean keep something um, in security, to protect it. And in the context here, though, if you look at the very end of chapter 3, these two words show up together. This is the only other place in Genesis where they show up together, other than Genesis 3.15, Genesis 2.15, the only other place in Genesis they show up together, and then we see them together show up in the book of Numbers with respect to the Levites serving and guarding the tabernacle. This is priestly language. Now look here at the end of chapter 3. It says, verse 22, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil, now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore God, the Lord God, sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground, to serve the ground that in the previous verses is cursed, to work the ground from which he was taken. And then it says, he drove out the man and at the east of the garden he placed the cherubim, that's plural, for cherubs, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way, and then we see this word, to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, that word guard is the same word for keep that we see back in Genesis 2.15. It's the very next time in the Bible it shows up. What the cherubim were called to do in not allowing any humans back into the Garden of Eden is what Adam was being called to do within the Garden to be a guardian, a protector. And the question is, from what? The land that God places Adam in, bigger than the garden, is going to include a family that's going to multiply. It's going to include animals. It's going to include plants like trees. And anything within This sphere of sovereignty that God has placed Adam, he's called to do two things, to keep it, that is to serve it, and to keep it, that is to guard or protect it. And then the question mark as we're reading through Genesis is, guard it from what? The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. 
And in the serpent comes, and the serpent goes first to the woman. In Genesis chapter 2, the man was made first. And Paul's going to make significance of this in 1 Timothy chapter 2. The man was made first. He's commissioned to be the primary provider, primary protector within the sphere of his sovereignty. And then God says, you need help to accomplish the task. Back in Genesis 1, God made man and woman, male and female, in his image, and he commissioned them, blessing them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, hear this word, subdue it. Have dominion, male and female, together subduing, together having dominion. A co-partner in the reign of God on the earth. A kingdom family that doesn't just have a king, it has a queen who has full authority. And yet, a helper and underneath her husband. There's God, then there's Adam, and then God puts right up by his side this helper. And we call it marriage. And the goal is that this couple would fill the earth, multiply, and subdue it, taking the image of God that's bound up in each of them. Now they're a couple, and they would fill the earth, allowing the image of God, a display of God, to be ever-increasing and filling the globe, that the glory of God may fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's the image of the original makeup of marriage, the purpose of marriage, to put God on display throughout the entire earth. And Satan enters into the garden, and he goes first to the woman. We see this in chapter 3, right up at the front end. He said to the serpent, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit trees of the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst, middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. So he appears to be, Satan that is, the serpent, doing an end run around God's structure as he's laid it out in Genesis 2. The serpent is targeting this woman and seeking to deceive her. And we could say so much more, but she gets deceived. And verse 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to her eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, comma, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. We don't want to put anything too much into the text here, but the, what it says is he was with her. She didn't have to run across the garden Look what I found, honey. He was with her. She takes the fruit, she gives it to him, and he eats. And the question for the readers, if we've been careful to understand Adam's role as the primary provider and primary protector, the question is, where is he? Where's the protection? There's something going on here at the core of this marriage that is 
not right. You have a woman that is taking a role that appears to be counter in some way, and you have a husband who's being extremely passive and not taking on a role that he's supposed to play. And God enters in, he knocks on the gate of the garden, and we see him approach, verse 9, whereas the serpent came to the woman, God comes to the man. Because as the primary provider and protector, he has a helper who's right there partnering with him in filling the earth, in subduing it, each of them with distinct roles, but equal in their opportunity to image God, equal in their opportunity to worship God, equal in their opportunity to to partner in the filling and the subduing and the dominion oversight, side by side, and yet primary responsibility of carrying this out goes to the man and God approaches him. Satan, different route. God, where is the man? And this Man, who just lived passively, comes into the story. Where are you, Adam? God says. And the man says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I I was naked and hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now look with me back in verse 17 of chapter 2. What did God say would happen if they ate of the tree that they were supposed to not eat from. You will surely die. So that's in the back of our minds as we're making our way through the story. God approaches Adam. Have you eaten of the tree? And what does he do? The passive husband becomes the aggressive husband. This is Genesis 3 world. This is not Genesis 2 world. This is not the picture of what should be. This is the picture of what is in far too many homes. Passes the buck off to the woman. The woman passes the buck off to the serpent. And now God declares curse. Look with me at Genesis 3, 14. Here's where we're at. Serpent. Yes. No. The First Timothy 2 says the woman was deceived first and then the man. I don't think what's at stake here is Paul saying a woman is more deceptible, but he's simply identifying the structure. There was something that was out of place here. But so the the question is, how could it be out of place before the fall if the problem was the eating and the every activity comes from a heart. So we read in verse 6 of chapter 3, she saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. That, that right there is a package of sin. And 1 John chapter 2, 14? 
is going to echo it, packaging it as a testimony of sin for all of us. Here's what John says. Ah, 2.16, rather. All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, she saw that the tree was good for food. The desires of the eyes, and that it was a delight to the eyes. And pride in what we have. And that the tree was desired to make one wise. I'm seeing a, it is a whole package here. But what's intriguing is that there's only two people that we can be in. We're all born in Adam. So even though the woman was deceived first, there is a, even a more fundamental sin than her deception, a more fundamental sin than even the eating of the apple. Or it's not an apple, uh, whatever it was, some kind of a fruit. Apfel in French moved into becoming apple in English, so it fills up all of our pictures, but probably not an apple. Um, but the... whole package here, and we're either in Adam, we're not in Eve, because he was the representative head of all humanity, and Jesus stands as the other representative head. So even in her sin, there's a more fundamental failure that appears to be at stake in that he's not operating as a primary provider and protector. So I am seeing it as a whole. Um, So here's God judging the serpent. Verse 14, Because you've done this. There may have been other sins that the serpent did before this. But the judgment that brings about the cross event was this one. That's what it says. Because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock. That does suggest the livestock are cursed. The serpents just curse more. Above the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. From this point on, forward in the Bible, all kinds of imagery and all kinds of psalms and throughout the prophets will see language of being on one's belly, eating the dust, having their nose in the dirt, all of it is, I believe, supposed to be echoes of this text. It's a picture of judgment, of being forced into submission. And then we read, I will put enmity between you and the woman, serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, that is the offspring of the woman, will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The first gospel right there. The serpent is cursed. And in one sense, because it's a a promise of God, he already knows from this point forward, his end is certain. The end that climaxes in the beast being thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation 19 finds its reality right here. Some go to texts in Isaiah and Ezekiel that 
they read to, they even give him a name, Lucifer, and that he was some kind of a musician in the heavens and then got thrown down. I am not convinced that those texts actually talk about, they're talking about the devil. I think they're talking about Adam. Because it's identifying a king, king of Babylon or king of Tyre, depending on which text you're in, and he was like a cherub in the temple of God, in the garden of God. And that's the role that Adam was supposed to play. And it's Adam who gets kicked out of the presence of God. I, I think that's the backdrop to that story. But we still have texts in Jude that talk about the, the uh, demons being thrown out of heaven, cast down. Revelation chapter 12 talks about the devil himself being cast down. Whether that's talking about something that happened way back before this time, or whether it's talking about what happens in the work and ministry of Jesus forward so that the type of Job experience where Satan is up in the heavenlies in Job's day is no longer happening this side of the cross. Um, But there, there may also be something that went on before this. All I'm wanting to draw attention to right now is that the devil is cursed. There may be other reasons he's cursed, but in this text, he's cursed because of this act of countering God's purposes for right order. He's trying to thwart God's family through which God has already said he wants to build a kingdom, a kingdom that will display him throughout all the world. Filling the earth, multiplying and subduing it. The Garden of Eden expanding as the man and woman's role of cultivation of the land increases. This is the ideal that is thwarted at the fall. Not only that, there is a... The fact that he is already more crafty than all the beasts of the field. And the question is, how did he get here? What's he doing in this sphere What I want to say is that Genesis 2 already anticipates, before we're even told about this serpent, it already anticipates that there is an enemy that has to be conquered. Even before evil comes on the scene, this is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And and this is in a world that God declared very good. What the story does is it sets us up to not allow any previous event in the serpent's life, raising the questions, how did he get here? What has he done? The story won't let us camp on that, on those questions. It's silent about those questions. It puts the blame on a man and a woman who were deceived by an instigator who has been a murderer from the beginning, we're told. And so it's, it's this combination. It's this event that the revelation of his defeat now comes about. It's the first revelation we receive, and it may have been the first revelation he received, that God has taken what he has done extremely seriously. So when I say, what was the first rebellion? I'm seeing his problem being a countering of God's purposes by disrupting right order. I'm seeing the woman an assertion of primary influence and lets down her guard in being deceived, but then the man 
passivity resulting, it ultimately results in aggression. This is what the problem is. Now, into this, then, God curses the serpent. We've read the curse. Now, look at the curse on the ground, verse 17. And to Adam, he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have not eaten of the tree and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Our verse is surrounded by curse. That's all I want us to see right now. Then we come in and we see that the words that God gives the man and the woman here are also part of punishment. They're not called curse, but they seem to be. It's part of punishment. It truly is that. When he says to the man, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for of it, out of it you were taken, for you are of dust, and to dust you shall return. This is punishment. This is death. So when I come here and I look at what is this about the woman, her desire being for the man, it's framed in the context of these punishments. Because, uh, verse 16 begins with, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And throughout the rest of the Bible, that imagery is picked up as curse language. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. Babylon. This is, he's talking about Babylon. Their pain will be like a woman writhing in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Or against Israel. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? The pain seized you like a woman in labor? Ten, writhe and groan, O daughters of Zion. Sorry, ten, that's the verse number. (laughs) That's funny. Uh, Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. This is about curse. This is about evidence of God's judgment. So now we come to our verse. The promise that the woman's desire would be for her husband is not a good thing. That's how I want you to be thinking about this right off the bat. It's not a good thing. Now, in the very near context, this language of your desire will be for someone. The word desire only shows up three times in our Bible. This word for desire. It happens to show up in Song of Songs, which we'll touch on in a second. But it shows up just a few verses later, in the very next chapter. And in that discussion, it uses also the exact same verb for rule. So I think we're actually being called to understand the context of punishment against the woman in light of what is going to be described of Cain. So that we might be saying, what does it mean? Her desire will be for her man, but, and he shall rule over her. But as soon as we get to the Cain episode, things become clear. Look at this verse. It's Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. It's beginning in verse 6. For the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, Cain? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is like a lion. 
Sin is crouching at the opening, at the door. And then it says, its desire is for you, but you shall rule over it. So notice something here. The desire here is the desire that sin has for Cain. So how would you package that? What does it mean that sin desi- sin's desire is for Cain? Okay, not looking for his best interest. Others? Control? Devouring? A longing for destruction? Some kind of a, a thwarting of who the husband is supposed to be. There's something counter here. This is not a good desire. But then notice the next phrase. The ESV translates it with a must. Because, how do we know it's not just you will? It's the same word. That's the challenge. You will do something or you should do something. The word doesn't change. It's all based on context and usually word order. But in this instance, there's an emphasis right up front with an explicit you, you. And so... It's fully context that tells us this should be you must rule over it rather than you will rule over it. What tells us it can't be a promise? Sin's crouching at the door, Cain, but you will rule over it. How do we know that's not the reading? Because he didn't. And God's the one who's making the prediction. So when I take this reading of sin desiring to overcome, overpower, thwart Cain, and then the call, but you must rule over it. And then I take that down into this verse, your desire, woman, will be for your husband, like sin's desire was for Cain. And then the ESV has... And he shall rule over you. It's the exact same phrase as we see here. But using shall makes it a little more, in English, makes it a little more ambiguous. Is it a promise or is it a command? And I think, based on the necessity for this to be a should, you must do this. But Cain doesn't. But it still tells him what he ought to do. Though sin is wanting to overpower you, you need to be one who stays in control. Similarly, as punishment, as evidence of curse, as evidence of need, the woman's desire will be to thwart the headship of her husband. But he must rule over her. Now, rule can be a scary word. It's a different word here than we see in chapter 1 where it says, the woman and man together, filling the earth, subduing the earth. That's images of war. 
A husband and wife side by side overcoming obstacles together. Having dominion. That's reign language. Husband and wife side by side together. This is just a different verb. And some people would say then, this is supposed to be, this is part of the curse too. Part of the curse is that the husband will respond to your to the woman's attempts to overcome him, he'll respond with fierce aggression. Much like we saw in chapter 2. But that's not how we read this. This is what ought to be. And I propose then, when we read this, the husband shall rule over you, this too is a statement within the context of punishment, what ought to be. And then we have to step back and we say, well, what does it mean? Already, what do we know it would mean that the husband would rule over his wife as an antidote to the curse? Here's the implication of what I'm seeing. To the woman, he says, your desire shall be for your husband, but he must rule over you. What's in the green there is the antidote. So there's a problem. There's a punishment. The woman's desire or inner longing will be to control the home and overpower the husband. There's That there would be, as part of the curse, within families all over the globe, women whose inner makeup, whose disposition is to be a usurper of headship, to be a controller rather than a helper and a companion, to embrace God's right order, goes against the grain unless you've been reborn. What's the solution given in the text? That the husband must rule as primary, not sole, provider and protector. That the husband must rule as as God designed, and now we want to go back and say, well, what does that look like? What does it mean to rule in the home? What does headship look like according to Genesis 1 and 2? And I want to propose that it means servant-hearted, active, not passive, non-aggressive leadership that receives help from his wife. That's rule. Servant-hearted leadership. So let's go back and consider Genesis 2 for a second. The takeaway from this question, I think, is that wrong desire in the heart is a signal that the curse is being operative in my marriage. It could show its face in the aggressive wife. It could show its face in the passive husband or the aggressive husband. But I think this text is saying, this is not how it ought to be. The Bible is filled with God cursing, that is bringing people toward death, bringing people toward the way that it shouldn't go. And as we're going to see, anytime the curse is evident, it's supposed to be like a road sign telling us, you're going the wrong way. Look with me here. Now, on your handout, I noted that 
This passage here and the passage that follows, I accidentally put it up at the heading, but it should go here next to headship. So you could just take those verses and bring them down to headship. Right, right. So there is a, a giving over, just like we see in Romans 1, a type of giving people over so that sin is not only worthy of judgment, sin is judgment. And we're seeing it right here in the garden. Here's how I understand headship. Headship is the husband's responsibility to stand as the primary provider and protector with self-sacrificing, other-exalting love and by receiving help from his wife. Let's look in Genesis first before we go outside of it. Genesis 2, first off, verse 15, God places the man, the woman isn't made yet, she hasn't been taken from his rib yet, God places the man who would ultimately be called Adam. He places the man, representative of all humanity, into the garden and commissions him to work it and to keep it. Or as I prefer to translate it, to serve it and to guard it. Now right there, I have to have a framework that says what's inside the garden. Or the it could actually be broader language for the land as a whole. What's going to be part of the land that he has to serve? Well, certainly there's the animals, there's all the vegetation, but there's a family. And what God is commissioning this head of the household to be is principally a servant and a protector, a guardian, a provider and a protector. That's that's his vision for biblical manhood. What it means to lead is to put yourself on the line. What it means to lead is to to step out and do what it takes so that all the, the needs are met and yet fully aware, as God says in verse 18, it's not good that a man should be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable or corresponding to him. He needs help with the task. It doesn't mean that she's supposed to do the task, nor does it mean that he's supposed to do it alone. They're going to be complementing one another. But the primary provision, primary protection, bearing the responsibility, is, is on this man. And he lives out his leadership from the perspective of servant heartedness, not the passivity that we see at the tree. Not the aggression that we see after God shows up. No, this is a man who, as it says in verse 23, when the girl is brought to him, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. There's only three people on the scene. There's his woe man. He's the man He looks at her and he just says, you can see it right there. He looks at her, she shall be called, whoa, man. And they were naked and unashamed. In Hebrew, he's ish, and he looks at her and he says, isha. Naked and unashamed, beautiful, one fleshness, but when... When, when he looks at his own heart, his disposition, so there's only three people on the scene, and he's not talking to her, 
Because he doesn't say, you shall be bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He says, this, this woman that you've given me shall be bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Who's he talking to? He's at the altar making his wedding vows, declaring before the only witness of this marriage, this woman is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. When Adam stubs his toe, he doesn't take out his hatchet and chop it off. When he bites his cheek, he doesn't take a hammer and say, Molar, that's the last time you're going to do that to me. But we have husbands, and I am one of them, who far too quickly... When things are hurting in my own life, I act as though my wife is disposable. If I'm hurting in my body, I don't cut off my appendages. And I'm supposed to treat her as if she's part of my body. And yet far too quickly I act like she's disposable in the way I talk to her in the way that I confront her, in the way I fail to say thanks. And yet I'm supposed to treat her as my own body. That's how Paul talks in Ephesians 5 when he says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. This is how the husband is supposed to love his wife as his own body. Paul's just doing interpretation of Genesis chapter 2. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is the context for leadership. This is the context for headship. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way, in the same way, husbands, love your wives. This is what it means to rule. Adam is a needy husband. And in my own marriage, I can just say that my wife is almost omnicompetent. In so many areas, I am, I am not. She is strong. And I need her to balance me. I am not the professor. I'm not the shepherd. I'm not the dad that I am without her. And it pains me to think what, it, what life would be like without her. Because she has been the principal agent, human agent in my life to make me into a better man. And, it's be, and so much of it is because she's been intentional, she's been vocal. Not a usurper, but a, a compliment. And often she's able to anticipate where our family needs to go better than I can. She's a better barometer of the pressure in the home than I am. And so it would be equally wrong for the wife to not be operating as the helper. And I'll touch on that right after this. But here's the third text where desire shows up. Notice it doesn't include the rule language, and it's not the wife's desire will be for her husband. I am my beloved's, says the maiden in the song, and his desire is for me. And I think, actually, this is a commentary on Genesis chapter 2. Song of Songs is a commentary on Genesis chapter 2, as it's supposed to be. 
as it's ultimately pointing to Christ's relationship to his church. Song of Songs is, a, is an image of the ideal marriage, and here you have the husband having proper desire for his girl. The curse is being overcome in this text. This is how it's supposed to be. Right kinds of hungers, not treating her as an object to be abused or overcome, but a partner to receive love from and to give love to. Here's the girl, helpership, respectful and submissive, complementary partnership with the husband. She is a helper that joins him in imaging God and in exercising dominion, Genesis 1.28. So I've looked at both of those texts. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So we see that language. In in Genesis 2, she's called a helper. In Ephesians 5, he's called a head. And Paul is going to cite Genesis 2, so this is how he's thinking. So head and helper operating side by side is beautiful, complementary, ideal images. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And headship isn't a bad thing. We don't want to ever say that we can, that Jesus and the church, whoever's in, in front, doesn't matter. No, the picture then matters on earth. The husband and wife relationship matters because what's being displayed is the greatest relationship in all reality. And we don't want to muddy it. And yet, it's an imperfect picture because God chooses to use husbands like me. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Respecting a husband is not desiring it as part of the punishment. Look at this text. Leviticus 26. You could turn in your Bibles as we're coming to the end here. Leviticus 26. I identified Genesis 3. This is the curse world. The curse world is Genesis 3. And I said, when you see the signs of the curse evident in our lives, evident in our marriage, it's supposed to be a signal. Get back on track. Get back into Genesis 2 world. Don't live in Genesis 3 world. It's a, it's a gift of God. When we see the curse, when He opens our eyes to recognize I'm in sin right now. I haven't loved you well. It's a gift of God to move us out of blindness into sight, to be able to see, I've been wicked lately. God help me, I've been wicked. Leviticus 26. Just look at the logic of how, what the curses are supposed to do. Beginning in verse 14, Israel... If you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do them, then I'm going to bring curse on you. This is what I'm going to do. I'll visit you with panic, with wasting disease, with fever that consume the eyes and make a heart ache. And you, will shall, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I'll set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you. That's curse. But then look at verse 18. What's the purpose of that? 
For those who have eyes to learn from the discipline, this is what we get. And if in spite of this, you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold. Ask yourself, what was the purpose of the curse? I will discipline you sevenfold. I'll break the pride of your power. I'll make your heavens like iron. Your strength shall be spent in vain. Verse 21, then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I'll continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. I'll let loose the wild beast. Verse 23, and if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you. Why does God unleash curses? To restore us. Just last night, the curse was evident in my own heart, in our own home. It's a gift if God is, if God will humble you under the curse. We're not bound by it. We're not a slave to it. Christ has redeemed us from it. We're still in this broken world, and the evidences of the flesh still show up in our homes. But when we see Genesis 3 operative, it's a gift of God. It's a road sign saying you're going the wrong way. Don't go this way. Repent and get back into Genesis 2 world. Where the wife is a helper, competent, God-dependent helper, and where the husband is leading with servant-hearted love. Loving his wife as he loves his own body. In Ephesians 5, here's where we close. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. This is actually an explanation. There's actually not even a verb in verse 22. It just says in the Greek text, wives to your husbands. And the question is, wives what to your husbands? Well, it's explaining something. In the very previous verse, in 21, it says, submitting one to another out of reverence for God. And it's a participle. Submitting. Submitting one another, wives to your husbands, and then there's a, a one anotherness in the submission. Husbands to your wives. The submission looks differently, but you're submitting one to another, wives to your husbands. The participle submitting is actually clarifying how people are supposed to obey an imperative. And this is so important. The imperative is, anybody know what it is? It's the command. What's the command in Ephesians 5? Anybody know what it is? Pardon? Not submit, actually. All that's down here in the explanation. The main command, I think it's verse 18. I'm, I don't recall exactly. The main command, and, and we can't see it as well in, in English, but I'm just drawing our attention to it because it's powerful. It's powerful. Uh, be filled with the Spirit. There it is. So, yes, verse 18 be filled with the Spirit, and then there's a whole series of participles that clarify how does that get evidenced in our lives. Be filled with the Spirit, 
addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's one. Singing and making melody of the Lord, that's two. Giving thanks always for everything, that's three. Submitting one to another out of reverence for Christ. Wives to your husbands. Here's the point. Explanation is, it's clarifying how we should be submitting. It should impact our homes. But all of this is merely unpacking an imperative. Be filled with the Spirit. And unless we get... We obey the command, be filled with the Spirit. We're never going to see submitting one to another evidenced in our lives. We need blood-bought grace to have marriages like are being called for, to not live in Genesis 3 world. And it's the Spirit of Christ that has come, that is here to redeem, that is powerful to to overcome sin and move us from a direction that is not healthy. And there may be some, even this morning, that are saying, I see evidences of the curse in my own home. And I just call upon you. Be filled with the Spirit. Plead for help. Open the Word. Ask Him to change you. And then humble yourself before your spouse, before your kids. And see the Spirit of grace work and make you into a man, make you into a woman that you, we can't be on our own. We don't want the woman's desire to be for the man, but we do want the man to rule rightly in a God-honoring way, in a way that nurtures the life and not death of his spouse. Let's pray. Father, how much we need your help. Fill us with your spirit, I pray. Overcome sin and nurture life that will allow our marriages to display this unbelievable union between Christ and His church. For the help of our neighbors and for Your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.